Thank you guys. If you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to the book of Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, we're going to be in verses 2 through 9 today. Paul has thanked the Philippians for the gift that they have given him for his ministry. He's encouraged them to strive for unity by looking to the example Christ has set for us. Uh, through his service of us through the cross. And now Paul wants to address a particular issue in the church at Philippi that was causing some measure of distress. He's talked about unity and the importance of unity, and now he wants to address a specific situation that's important. Uh, Paul is going to do something that he rarely does here, at least when talking to a specific church. He's going to actually name names. He's going to call out two ladies in the church there in Philippi that were causing some measure of difficulty and problem. One of the reasons we believe we should teach the Bible, verse by verse, section by section, chapter by chapter, is because the same problems the human beings were facing in the book of Philippians are some of the same problems we're facing today. The same sin... The same difficulty and distractions that were there in the human heart, in the, in the lives of these people in the church at Philippi, are still at work in our hearts today. So really what we're going to be getting into today as we look at this situation is the role that we're to have in dealing with and responding to conflict. So I'm just curious if in your lifetime... If you've ever dealt with conflict with another person, would you please raise your hand? My goodness, 100%. I would even bet if you've dealt with conflict with another person in the last month, raise your hand. Okay, not quite everybody, but close. How about this? If you dealt with conflict on the way to church this morning in the car, raise your hand. Okay, a few of you actually raised your hand. (laughs) You are more honest than the first service people were. So conflict is a part of our daily lives, right? Dealing with conflict, having problems, working through those, it's a part of our lives. The good news is the timeless truths of the Word of God give us guidance not only to what was happening in the church of Philippi, but these truths give us guidance into how we're to respond to conflict today. The passage of Scripture before us is going to show us what real agreement and unity looks like, and it's also going to show us the characteristics we've got to have in our lives if we're going to embrace the role of being peacemakers. I want to show you all this from the Word of God, Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. Would you please stand with me to your feet as we honor the reading of God's Word? Philippians 4, we're going to be in verses 2 through 9 today. 2 through 9, we read these words. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is in any excellence... If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Let's pray together, church. Lord, we do pray in this moment as we work through a difficult topic, talking about conflict. God, I pray that you would work in the hearts of every person here. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would remove distraction. And Lord, that as you speak to us, you would find us not just to be hearers of your word, but would you help us to be doers of your word as well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. This passage starts with Paul addressing two ladies in the church. Yodia and Syntyche, these were apparently ladies who were very involved in the church. He describes them in verse 3 as fellow laborers, fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. These were not ladies who were passive people on the fringes. These are not people that we might assume are non-believers or non-Christians. Paul is very clear that actually these two women are solid believers in the faith. They're solid workers for the gospel that we are probably right to assume were instrumental in the founding of the church at Philippi. But somewhere along the way, these two ladies have begun to be at odds with each other about something. Somewhere along the way, these two women have uh, disagreements that have led to some problems in the church. And so, notice Paul's command. His encouragement is... Verse 2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to, here's the key phrase, agree in the Lord. Now that word agree means to have the same mind or to come to some sense of harmony. That word agree is not merely the absence of conflict. What Paul is talking about is the presence of a unity of a oneness of mind. We get some information, some implication about what kind of unity he's talking about because he says they're to agree, notice in your Bibles in verse 2, in the Lord. Their agreement is to be around a common set of beliefs about who Jesus is. And if there's one thing I want you to hear today, this is the statement that I would make to kind of sum up this message. Real unity, the kind of unity Paul's encouraging these women to and to us today. Real unity is grounded in believing that Jesus is bigger and Jesus is better. Real unity emerges when we come together and believe that Jesus is bigger than whatever it is we're talking about. That he's the one who ultimately is going to provide solutions and wisdom and discernment but that we also believe that Jesus is better 
that we believe Jesus is better than you having your way or me having my way. That we believe that the advancement of Christ's kingdom is bigger and greater and better than the advancement of our own kingdoms. You see, what Paul is not doing is he's not giving these women and this church a pill they take three times a day and their unity issues are resolved. He's not giving them a simple quick fix to the conflict and problems they're facing as a church. Rather, what Paul is doing is describing the conditions necessary for real conflict resolution to emerge. Paul's describing the ingredients you've got to have in play if you're going to have real peace and real unity of mind. So I don't know if we have any gardeners in here. Anybody have a garden in here? Any gardeners in here? Okay. If you have a successful garden, you know that there are certain conditions necessary for you to have plants, right? To have life. You have to have the right type of soil. You have to have the right type of plant and seeds and all the things that come with that. You've got to have water. You've got to have the right temperature. You've got to have the right balance of light and darkness. There's a lot of things that have to happen in order for life to emerge when it comes to plants and a garden. What Paul's doing is he's giving us the ingredients, just like you have to have in a garden for life to happen. Paul's giving us the ingredients that are necessary for real conflict resolution to come about. Listen to me. I am convinced that the reason some of us find real peace in our homes and in our relationships elusive is because we are not creating the conditions necessary for real peace to happen. You see, when I believe that Jesus is bigger and better, it frees me from the shackles of pride to be able to say, I'm sorry. Can I just say that a lot of us will do our marriages and our relationships and our parenting and our families and our workplace environments a lot of good if we can learn to humble ourselves and say, I'm sorry for what I said. Now, I'm not talking about a loaded I'm sorry. You know what I'm talking about where you say, I'm sorry that you took it that way. Kind of a... Think about that later. You'll catch it on later, okay? I'm sorry that you received. I'm sorry you're so sensitive. That's not a genuine apology. And a genuine apology is one where Jesus frees us from the shackles of pride to say, I don't have this image I have to uphold. I can look at you and say, I'm sorry for what I said to you. I'm sorry for how I came across. I'm sorry for how I hurt you with what I said and what I did or what I didn't say. You see, if I don't believe Jesus is bigger and better, I'm not sure I'll have the freedom to do those types of things. Let me give you another example. When I believe that Jesus is bigger and better, it frees me to be able to say, I love you even though you're driving me crazy. You ever been there? (laughs) Got an amen, all right. Somebody's with me. 
you know, you look at your child or your child, if you're a child, you look at your mom and your dad and you say, you make me so angry sometimes, but I love you. How can you have that kind of love that forgives, the kind of love that allows me to walk through difficult seasons about disagreement? It's because I've been loved with a kind of forgiving love. I've been loved with a sacrificial, long-suffering love. And when I believe that Jesus loves me like that, I can look at you and say, you are driving me up the wall, but I love you. If you don't have that kind of stability to be able to communicate your differences and your disagreements while still communicating your love for one another, especially in your families, it's difficult for real conflict resolution to emerge. So let me ask you, is there this kind of unwavering conviction and belief on your part in your relationships, especially with your family members, other believers, that Jesus is bigger and that he's better than what you're facing. Let me tell you why this is so important. Paul ratchets things up a little bit here, church. And he goes on to say, verse 2, he encourages, or excuse me, verse 3, look at what he says. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Now, we don't know exactly who Paul was talking about here. Was it a trusted friend he had in the church at Philippi? Was he talking to a group of people that he was trying to encourage? But what we can definitely agree upon is that there is within this verse an implicit call to every believer to be a peacemaker. Part of what we're supposed to be about is investing our lives in seeing peace emerge in the midst of conflict and difficulty, especially among believers. So here's what this means, church. We are to be a people that are committed to helping other people remember that Jesus is bigger and better. We're to be a people that are serious about helping other people know that in the midst of conflict and difficulty, that while this disagreement may be serious or intense, while this disagreement may even be over important biblical matters in the life of a church, that we are called to bring to bear a perspective in the lives of those around us that Jesus is bigger and that he's better than anything that we'd ever bring to the table from our own kingdoms. I don't know if you've been watching the news, but we have learned that now the country of North Korea very ominously has the ability to fire a missile from their country with a nuclear warhead all the way to our country. Scary stuff, dark days in which we're living. But what you can know is that we do have some measure of defense, right? We've got radar, we've got different things that are there to help us alert us if there was ever a launch like that. And you can know that if North Korea ever fired a missile towards the United States of America, we would do a lot to try to stop that from reaching our borders, right? We would scramble jets and we would do all kind of defensive measures to try to keep that missile from landing and detonating in one of our cities. Now, I have a question. Why would we do that? 
Why would we try to defend our borders from a missile that would detonate? Well, because we know if, if they were successful in detonating that kind of missile, it would cause untold damage and carnage in our country. Now, here's what I want you to know. Disunity, distraction, unresolved conflicts in a church are just as dangerous to a local New Testament body of believers as a missile is to a country. You and I, brothers and sisters, are to be revealing and showing the love and the unity of the body of Christ because we believe that Jesus is bigger and better. That we put aside our differences that we have about other things that are important, that we lay down our preferences for what's precious to us. And when we allow distraction, gossip, to hurt the body and we don't step in, we're allowing harm to the body of Christ. And so what I'm describing and what I think we need is just how our country has a radar for threats that would hurt our nation. We need a spiritual radar that looks for unresolved problems unresolved conflict that we're called to step in with our own defensive measures and be peacemakers. Here's the good news. Jesus has put in his body mechanisms, defense mechanisms, to help with the problems that unity and conflict can can have happen in a body. Do you know what those defensive measures are? It's you. You and I are the ways that God is calling the body to guard and to protect a sense of unity. We're called to be peacemakers. I'm not talking about prying into other people's affairs in a way that's unhelpful. I'm not talking about trying to get in the middle of something that you're not really going to help. But especially with people that you have relationships with, if we become aware of conflict and disagreement and dysfunction, we are called to be peacemakers. We're called to have a spiritual radar that looks for those types of things. So let me ask you this question. Do you have a sense of radar and a sense of perspective that's looking for ways that you can be a peacemaker? Are there ways in your home and your relationships with your spouse or your relationship with your children or if you're a child, if relationship with your parents, are you looking for ways to be a peacemaker. You know, what I'm afraid of sometimes is that we're not really peacemakers. I'm afraid oftentimes we just empathize with people, which I think is important, right? Listening to people, hearing their problems, hearing their difficulties. But what Jesus is calling us to is more than just listening to others' problems and difficulties. He's calling us to remind people that Jesus is bigger and that Jesus is better. Here's what I want to do with the remaining time that I have left today. I want to show you four characteristics of a peacemaker. I want to show you what a peacemaker looks like from the Word of God. In fact, if you read verses 4 through 9, you'll see an undercurrent, a theme about peace, the peace of God, the peace that comes from God, the God of peace. You'll see this theme emerge. And what I believe Paul's doing as he kind of gives us these last few exhortations and commands is he's trying to shape in the Philippians and in us a kind of 
uh, instinct and a kind of perspective that helps us embrace the role of peacemaking. Four things I want to show you from this passage that I think constitute biblical peacemaking. Number one, I believe this passage shows us that we must have a joy rooted in Jesus. If we're going to be biblical peacemakers, we need to have a joy in Jesus. Look back at your Bibles at verse 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, that word rejoice, the root word there, the noun there is the word joy. And it's talking about a vibrant, deep quality of life that comes from remembering that Jesus is victorious. It's, it's somebody that has a longing, a, a passion, kind of a hopeful expectation about life, not rooted in their circumstances always going their way. But this kind of joy he's talking about is rooted in the fact that Jesus has already overcome, that he's already victorious through his cross and resurrection. This is why he says, notice in your Bibles, to rejoice in the Lord. And in case we didn't get that, he says, again, I will say rejoice. It's as if Paul's saying it this way, you have a lot to be joyful about if you know Jesus. You have a lot to be thankful for, to praise Christ for if you know Jesus. Well, I don't know, Spencer, what do I, what do I have to be thankful about? I'm so glad you asked that. Let me tell you, if you know Jesus, You've been saved from something that you could not fix on your own. If you know Jesus, he's delivered you from danger that left to yourself would automatically destroy you, leaving you no hope. You see, every one of us enter this world thinking we're the main character, thinking we're self-appointed, self-serving, self-sovereigns who rule our own little kingdoms. And what the Bible makes clear is that because we enter the world thinking that way, living that way, we deserve a penalty of death. Please understand, if you do not know Christ, there is no other way out. Because while you deserved this penalty of death, Jesus Christ took your penalty for you. He died in your place. He rose again. And when the Bible says we're to rejoice in him, it's saying that because it's saying Jesus has delivered you from, saved you from the worst kind of danger for which you had no hope. And not only that, he didn't just save you from something, he saved you for something. He put your feet on a rock. He put you in this new kingdom in which you've been called to live for his glory and praise. The most exciting, exhilarating life you could ever live is living in service of King Jesus. And so when it says to rejoice in the Lord, it's saying you have been given something worth being joyful about. Now here's why this is so important. Joy in a peacemaker is important because joyful people remind us that real peace doesn't come from our circumstances. It comes from Jesus. Here's the lie I think we've got to get out of our heads. The lie is this. Well, I'll have real peace. I'll have real joy when all of my relationships, my finances, my health, when everything's going just the right way, then I'll have real peace. Then I'll have real joy. 
If I can just get every single person to do what they're supposed to do in my life, if I can just get every one of my finances to go the right direction, if I can just make sure every doctor's diagnosis is what I want to hear, then I'll have real peace. Can I just say something to you? If that is what you are looking for, you will never find it. It will never happen. The only way you're going to find real joy and real peace in this life is if you anchor your joy and your peace to something that never changes. And that's what Jesus has done for you. So think of it this way. Imagine that you go out on your boat one day, not today, kind of cold today, wouldn't be a good day to go out in your boat. But let's say you're out on the boat in the summer. And you're on your boat and you find a cove where you and your family are going to eat lunch or you're going to swim. And, but it's a windy day. And so you've got to figure out a way to anchor your boat so that it doesn't blow into the bank or doesn't blow into another boat there and, and have some kind of harm. And so you start rummaging around your boat and you find your old, trusty, tried and true anchor that's heavy, it's made of metal, it's it's kind of rusty looking, but it does the job. It's done a good job for years, and it's, it's reliable. But you also notice out of the corner of your eye that someone has brought aboard your ship a decorative anchor made out of styrofoam. Okay? And you hold up the styrofoam anchor, and you hold up the metal anchor. And here's the question. This is audience participation time. You ready? Because I think you can all get this question. You're smart. You're smarter than the first service, okay? Uh, which anchor... The styrofoam or the metal anchor is going to really protect your ship. Metal anchor is going to do that. Why? Because when you throw that anchor in the water and you secure it with that rope, it's going to keep your ship from moving about. However, on the other hand, if you throw that styrofoam anchor into the water and expect it to keep your ship from moving, you will be disappointed. Now, here's the point. When we try to tie our joy and our peace to our circumstances just going right, it's like trying to anchor our ship with a styrofoam anchor. You throw that thing in the water, it's blown back and forth. Whichever way the waves and the winds are blowing, it's blowing in that direction. One of the reasons joy and peace are often elusive to many of us is because we're not putting our anchor and our hope into something that doesn't change. The reason Paul calls us to rejoice and the reason that's a necessary quality for peacemakers is because it reminds us that real peace doesn't come from us just getting every single problem solved and every single issue dealt with. It comes from knowing and believing that Jesus is bigger and better. Number two, this passage also tells us that if we're going to be an effective peacemaker, we need a reasonableness for Jesus. Look back at your Bibles at verse 5. Verse 5 says this, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now that word reasonableness means to be gentle or yielding in spirit. A gentle person is not a weak or a passive person. One of the ways I've heard gentleness described well is its power under control. It's a principled person. It's a person that's strong and has conviction, but they have control over their emotions and how they communicate. A gentle person is not an aggressive, violent, severe, or rough person. Rather, what they're seeking to do 
especially in the midst of conflict, is to de-escalate and calm people that are in the midst of conflict. So one of my favorite shows growing up was um, a show called The Crocodile Hunter. Did anybody else watch that in here? You guys remember Steve Irwin? And very sad how he passed away tragically in the midst of working with an animal, but he had years and years of incredible experiences of his show showing him wrangling and wrestling with these animals of all different kinds. And one of the things that was always interesting to me is they would often take Steve Irwin and he'd be there with some crocodile or some cornered animal that was in an unsafe area and they needed to move the animal. And he just always seemed how to, to know how to calm these animals down. Like he knew that if you covered up their eyes or you laid on them a certain way or you did certain things with your hand or your feet, they would start to de-escalate the situation. They would calm themselves so that they could move that animal or they could safely get people out of that area so that they were protected. One of the things that's interesting as I was thinking about this passage this week is I was just reflecting on that, that he never, never once in the shows that I watched, was, was doing these things to assert his dominance or to show these animals who was boss and, and he was going to show them that he was really in charge. That was never his goal. His goal was always to de-escalate to calm that animal who could very powerfully hurt those around it and move them to a safer, secure location. I think what we have to recognize is the reason Paul is calling for reasonableness in peacemakers is because he's wanting to remind us that our goal is not to be right or to win in a conflict. Let me say that again. The goal for a biblical peacemaker is not to win or to prove their point or to be right. But biblical peacemakers, though principled, have one goal, to de-escalate things, to resolve conflict so that Jesus can be glorified. That's a very different goal than wanting to be right. That's a very different goal than wanting to have your way. What that means, brothers and sisters, is if we're going to be gentle and peaceable in how we resolve conflict, we need to be very careful in what we say and in how we say it. Your words, especially in the midst of difficult conflict and acute situations, your words have the ability either to escalate and make things worse, or they have the ability to calm and make things better. Um, I don't know if you've ever ever watched like the end of a spy movie or an action movie where there's a bomb, right? And they've got to disarm the bomb, right? And so you've got your hero, your main character, who flips, opens the bomb, and there are all these wires, right? And they're trying to figure out which wires to cut, right? If you cut the right wire, the bomb stops, And everyone's saved in the world or wherever you are at that particular time. But if you cut the wrong wire, what happens? The bomb explodes. Okay? Your words are like scissors, and every conflict you deal with is like a bomb. Either your words are just in there cutting away, and the bomb's going to explode, and things escalate and get out of control. Or your words are going to cut the right wire that de-escalate things. This is why the book of Proverbs says, A soft answer 
turns away wrath. I would love to tell you that I've always done that well in our marriage. I have not. But there was this one time where uh, Shelly and I were first married. We've just been married for a short while. Um, we got pregnant about our ninth month into marriage, and we were in Texas. It was hot. July in Texas is really hot. Shelly was, I don't know, how many week, months pregnant? Six, five or six months, something like that. She was with child, and um, she had this white, beautiful Ford Mustang. It was two-door. Uh, we knew the two-door Ford Mustang days were numbered when we started having kids, all right? Those days were behind us, but we still had the Mustang at that point. And uh, one day she calls me out of the blue and says, I've lost the key to my car. Or no, 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 it wasn't that you lost the key. You locked the key in the car while it was running. Okay, summer in Texas, she locked the key in the car. The reason I said the thing about the lost thing is a little backstory. I may or may not have lost the spare key to the car a few months previous. I lost it, you locked it. That's what had happened. And so she called me while I was at work. It was a busy day at the church I was working at, at the time. There was a lot going on. And I was, frankly, just kind of annoyed with her phone call, if I'm just being perfectly honest. You did what? You locked the key and the car's running in July. You're out in the heat with your baby inside. Oh, this, oh it's like we were just kind of at each other. So we figured out a way for me to get home and for, her, for us to find a way for me to call somebody to get the car open. And I went home, and I was not happy. And she walked in. And we were both ready to, you know, you locked the key in the car. Well, you lost the key, and, you know, it was just going to be this, this thing, right? But in a moment of just, I can only credit it to the grace of God, before we went at each other, I just said, are you okay? And it was like everything went, do Right? Because before we started fighting with one another, when we asked how each other were doing and we actually cared for one another, it was as if everything kind of, it was like we cut the right wire on the bomb. Can I just say there are moments like that in every conflict that you face as a married couple, parents with your children. There are moments when somebody needs to cut the right wire. And remember that Jesus is bigger and better. No, by the way, I love you and I care about you. We're not trying to beat each other up here. I'm concerned about some of our marriages in this room, that some of us are more concerned about winning an argument and being right than we are about remembering that Jesus is bigger and better. If we're going to be effective at peacemakers, and guys, please hear me, that is not always the way I have responded in difficult situations. But if we're going to do that, we've got, we've got to use our words wisely. Number three, this passage also says, if we're going to be effective peacemakers, we have to have a freedom from worry. Freedom from worry that comes from Jesus. Look in your Bibles at verse six. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving... Let your requests be made known to God. So the word anxious there means to be overly worried, overly burdened with concern, almost to the point that you're kind of just overwhelmed into being unable to function. And he says you're to replace worry and fear about problems and conflict 
with a prayerful posture of thanksgiving. He's saying the way to overcome worry is to remember that you're not in control in the first place and to pray. You see, what praying does is it reminds us how much we need God and it reminds us that we've not been in control in the first place. So here's what I do in my life, okay? This is where I mess up. I think I subliminally will categorize problems in my life in one of two buckets. I think I put things in a bucket I think I can control and fix myself. And I have a bucket for things I think God can fix. The stuff I pray about that I think God needs to fix are the big things, right? Big problems. Problems in our country. Problems in our world. Death and and hurt that I see in people's lives. And cancer and, and health things that are just way out of my league. But it's very easy for me to create a category that I think I can solve. My kids, my finances, unless they get out of whack or unless my kids get to be a problem, I kind of put, put them in this category of things I think I can solve. Well, I, I don't know what you're talking about, Spencer. I don't have that category. I don't have things in my life that I think I can solve. Oh, yeah? Show me the things you don't pray about, and I'll show you the things you think you can solve. Show me the things that you think you've got under control and you can handle yourself, and I'll show you the things that we're pridefully thinking we can handle ourselves. Let me give you a newsflash, breaking news. You heard it here first. There aren't two categories. There's one. We need God's grace and mercy and strength for every single breath we take. The mistake that we can make is to think, well, I needed Jesus when I first came to him, but now I kind of live my life and I'm on autopilot and I kind of do my own thing. You do not need the grace of God just when you came to know him as Savior. You need God's grace and power and mercy every single day. There aren't two buckets. There's one category, and it is, I need Jesus. Why is this so important? Look at the result when we embrace the one category mindset. Verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When I lump everything in one category and say, God, I need you for everything, not just the big stuff, I need you for every moment of every day, God says the result is there is a peace that floods into your life, that guards your heart and your mind, that garrisons like a soldier around your mind and your heart and frees you from the shackles of worry and anxiety. Because guess what? You've never been in control in the first place. God is the one who's sovereign, sovereignly ruling the affairs of this world. So why is that so important for peacemaking? We need a peacemaking that is perpetuated by a posture of dependence and prayer. Let me give you another breaking news flash here about your relationship with your children. You cannot fix them. You cannot force them to do the things that you want them to do. Now, we're called to protect them. We're called to discipline them. We're called to... to, 
encourage them in the right direction, but there's going to come a point in every child's life when we have to recognize we are helpless to change their hearts. Mom and dad, one of the ways that we embrace this kind of perspective, especially in the conflicts that we deal with in our homes, is to beg God on our faces for our children. Yes, have conversations. Yes, debate things. Yes, work through things. But never forget that all of those should emanate from a posture of prayer and dependence on God to change them from the inside out. What we desperately, desperately need is a praying peacemaker who seeks to ask God to work and to move in people's hearts and lives. Fourthly and finally, we'll be done with this. This passage also tells us that we need a wisdom that comes from Jesus. Now the word wisdom doesn't show up directly in verses 8 and 9, but what you'll notice is he's encouraging people to think on things that produce discernment, that produce wisdom, and he's encouraging them to look to examples that reinforce wise and obedient living. Notice how he talks about what we're to think on and examples we're to follow, then watch very carefully the result. Here's the thing, what we're to think on. Look at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is in any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Here's the example. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and here's the beautiful result, and the God of peace will be with you. One of the things that I regularly try to teach against and clarify is that we reject, we disavow any form of the prosperity gospel, which says, if you believe God, you'll always have material blessing. If you give enough money, if you pray hard enough, you'll always have what you want. We do not believe that God is a cosmic genie in a bottle or a cosmic slot machine. Or you put things in and you pull and you hope you get what you've been wanting. However, we should be quick to clarify that there is a blessing associated with obedience. There is a blessing associated with wisdom being lived out in your life. What is that blessing that you speak of? It's far better than a Porsche or a Lamborghini or a Learjet or a house. The blessing that Jesus promises us, look back at verse 9. The God of peace will be with you. The blessing that we receive is far better than some trinket, some material thing that, that will vanish away in a matter of time. No, what we have in the midst of obedience is the blessing of knowing that God is with me. I cannot promise you that being a peacemaker will mean that you always have it easy. Oftentimes, being a peacemaker means that you're running towards danger. You're running into conflict. You're running into disagreement and and hurt and pain. But I can promise you that when we exercise the wisdom that Paul is encouraging here, that in a special way, the blessing and the favor and the presence of God will always be with us. Church, what I'm praying is that we would be a group of people that are serious about peacemaking. I wonder, though, as I close this morning, if there are some of you that would need to say, we need some peacemaking in our home. 
in your home. Maybe you're going from one conflict to the next and there's just no peace. There's no resolution to some of the problems that you're dealing with. Can I encourage you that some of what Paul's calling us to here is kind of attitude and perspective that says we're called to be peacemakers. Some of what some of you need to do today that are dealing with conflict in your homes is you need to go home and say, I'm sorry. You need to repent of the prideful need to be right and believe that Jesus is better and embrace the freedom that he brings with that. Maybe some of you are in the midst of conflict even in this church with other people that I'm not aware of or, or tension that's there. Embrace the role of a peacemaker. Well, I'm going to wait for them to come talk to me. They're the ones that did it. They're the ones that said it. No, that's not what the Bible portrays here. The Bible portrays a person who goes to another person and seeks forgiveness, seeks to work things out. And while peacemaking horizontally is incredibly important in our relationships in our homes, relationships in our churches, relationships in our workplaces, the most important peace that you desperately need today is peace with God. What this passage tells us is that because of what Jesus has done, we can rejoice but some of you may not know that joy because you've never experienced the peace that God offers you through His Son, Jesus. I want you to know that if before you're ever going to be a peacemaker in the lives of other people, you have to experience the peace that God offers you through Jesus Christ. You see, every one of us are born not at peace with God. We're born at war with God, at enmity with God as His enemy. Because we're at war with him through our sin, through our lying and our disobedience of our parents and our idolatry. We deserve the wrath that God has stored up for our sin. And while we deserve that, Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived a perfect life, and offered his life on that cross to take that wrath that was meant for you and was meant for me. And he makes it possible if we repent of our sin and place our faith and our trust in Jesus for us to be forgiven and for us to receive the peace that God offers us. If you're here today and you've never tasted and seen and experienced the peace that God offers you, our plea and appeal to you today would be to repent and trust Christ. For those of you that are here that, are, that know Jesus, we're thankful that you're here. I do pray that God has encouraged you today to be a peacemaker. But we're going to take some time as we conclude this service to remember what Jesus has done for us. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper, and as we do, this is an opportunity for us to remember